Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are not currently meeting for in-person services, but we would love to have you join us for our live stream at hopechapel.org forward slash live. We stream every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific time. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you again this morning. And I know we all long to be together physically, Lord willing, that will be soon. I want to remind you that the Lord is our shepherd and we shall lack nothing. We're right smack in the middle of a four-week series on spiritual warfare. I hope the things that I've been sharing with you are helpful to your life, insightful, and provide you with uh, wisdom and understanding about how best to enjoin the battle. This morning, I want to talk to you about the essentials of spiritual warfare. In 1 Peter chapter 5, that's a passage we've been using as our base passage. Peter writes this, Be self-controlled and alert, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself Restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. James has a similar statement to make in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. James tells us, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I think you can see the similarities between those two passages. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we are in a struggle. And he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And John assures us in 1 John 4, verse 4, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in this world. What great reality can we learn from these passages? Well, I think very simply is, there is an epic battle, a cosmic battle between two realms, the realm of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and and God's kingdom of light. There's an ongoing battle, an ongoing war, if you will. And we're not only affected by this battle, 
but we're called to join in fighting it. We participate in this. Many Christians think of a struggle with demonic forces as belonging to maybe just a long ago, the long ago Bible times or maybe some exotic missionary locales. It's easy to dismiss spiritual entities as having little significance for the average Western believer today. And I think there are three main factors behind that misconception. First of all, we are steeped in scientific rationalism. We disregard basically what we cannot observe or explain scientifically. Most recently, we heard the phrase, it's all about the science. And I think there's much confusion today about what the science says. And yet, while science helps us tremendously to understand and cooperate with the design of the universe, its explanations, quite frankly, are limited. The existence of the spiritual world, the spiritual realm, including demons, fallen angels, is just as factual as other unseen realities that we encounter on a daily basis. We easily accept the existence of microwaves. We easily accept the existence of radio waves and even microbes, viruses, and bacteria, even though we can't see them. All of us have had a bout with the unseen forces of the flu virus and some tragically with the coronavirus. And those viruses didn't care whether or not you or I believed in their existence. They're real. We've had the shakes, the fever, the aches, and maybe even the intestinal distress to prove it. Satan and demons behave in much the same way. Whether or not we believe they're real, their malevolent behavior does affect us. They despise God. They despise you and they despise me. And this hatred propels them into an unrelenting commitment to hinder the work of the gospel and to make life miserable for humans and more particularly for Christians. Now clearly Jesus and the apostles embrace the reality of an active unseen realm. We see that reflected in a number of passages in Luke chapter 10. Jesus has just sent the 72 out on their very first missionary excursion and uh, they return and we're told in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. But he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. As we're talking about this spiritual warfare and engaging it, 
we want to make sure that we keep proper perspective. As Jesus has told his own disciples, we rejoice that our names are recorded in heaven, not necessarily that we have authority over the demonic realm. In John chapter 14, Jesus himself says, the prince of this world is coming. It's one of the titles that Satan has in the New Testament. Jesus says, he's coming, but he has no hold on me. There's nothing in me that he can grasp, that he can gain a foothold in. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the apostle Paul tells us, in verses 10 and 11, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. What I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So you see a number of passages reflect the reality that Jesus and the early disciples did acknowledge and recognize there is a spiritual warfare going on. The Gospels present Jesus confronting demons regularly. And may I say that nothing in the Bible indicates a satanic activity would lessen with time or lessen in the future. On the contrary, the scriptures teach that the enemy would accelerate his assault against Christians as time progresses. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes this to the Thessalonian believers. The context is a discussion of the man of lawlessness, as we understand probably the Antichrist. And in the last verses of this passage, he says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So we see that the activity only accelerates on the part of the evil one. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, John writes, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So the demonic activity is only increasing. It's not decreasing since New Testament times, as we read in the Gospels and in the New Testament. The second reason we resist the notion of spiritual warfare is because we don't want to come across as being, quite frankly, superstitious or foolish. We don't want to look silly in the eyes of those around us. I remember I was once at a prayer breakfast where the man asking the blessing devoted the first half of his prayer to rebuking and cursing the devil. 
And a man standing next to me leaned over and whispered, is there something wrong with the food? (laughs) People can become so obsessed with the devil that they blame him for every negative thing that happens in their lives. And of course, we wish not to be associated with that kind of environment, with that kind of behavior. We don't want to look foolish. We don't want to look superstitious. So we avoid talking about these things and indeed addressing them. There's a third reason many Christians brush off demonic activity is because they think of it only in extreme terms. If a situation doesn't mirror the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5, then they think that Satan must not be involved. In other words, it has to be some radical, clearly evil, demonic manifestation. In the scriptures, not every struggle with Satan plays out like the climax of the exorcist. The apostle Paul, he understood that the kingdom of darkness hindered him in his travels. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, he writes to them and he says, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. So Satan's activity could be simply something in which you're hindered from moving into an area of ministry. Consider this. You've just spent some time, 20 minutes, a half hour, or an hour, explaining the gospel to someone who seemed to be very open and seemed to be very eager. And then you ask the question, are you ready now to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord? And that person responds positively. And as you begin to explain this person how to pray or to pray with them for that decision, there is some kind of interruption, some kind of distraction, some kind of thing that comes up. The phone rings. What a coincidence. Someone comes to the door. Or maybe the kids react and start fighting and arguing. What I'm suggesting is that there can be some kind of distraction, some kind of thing that that can happen easily that we would normally just write off as a coincidence, but not necessarily. Because of the timing, could this be maybe a situation the enemy would take advantage of to disrupt the flow of thought and uh, disrupt this opportunity to make some kind of commitment and not necessarily in a flashy movie worthy way but simply by manipulating a simple situation to create a distraction from the gospel message i believe the enemy does act that way it is true that not every negative event has a demonic source but some do stuff happens we know that stuff happens that can't exactly be explained rationally. We need discernment. We need to understand there is a very real possibility that this is a momentous event and the enemy does not want it to bear fruit. Typically, 
when I discuss whether an incident has spiritual causes. I've heard believers say such things as, well, sure, I, I believe. I believe in the existence of demons. I just don't want to blame the devil for more than he deserves. Well, neither do I. But most of us tend to blame the devil for far too little, too much of the time. Again, we need to be discerning believers and knowing that there is an adversary and that we are involved in a war. Now, I think it's important to understand the nature of Satan's war against us. And to do that, we need to examine the origins of this war. Satan, quite simply, was created by God as the highest, most beautiful, most powerful of all of God's angels. He was described as the anointed guardian cherub. The cherubim were apparently a class of angels that stood at the very throne of God. We see that reflected in the Old Testament in the construction of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top, the gold cover, upon which were molded cherubim, angels. And the picture is very, very clear. So Satan created as one of God's highest, rebelled. He rebelled. He tried to usurp God's authority in heaven. He lost that war. He lost that effort. And he and his like-minded angels were cast down to the earth. There's two classic passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. They give us some insight. I want to read these to you. In Isaiah chapter 14, beginning of verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned in the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Does that sound like pride and arrogance? His attempt to usurp the place of God? Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a, a companion passage. Beginning in verse 14. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. And I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. We see those two passages give us some measure of insight into where Satan came from. Again, he wasn't Satan in the beginning. But iniquity, evil was found in him. Wickedness was found in him. His pride laid him low. We know the Bible says that 
pride comes before the fall. And he was cast out of heaven. In fact, Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In Revelation chapter 12, again, we gain insight. Verses 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So we gain insight into this whole spiritual dynamic, this whole spiritual war, and when and where and how it began. And Satan, quite frankly, having failed to defeat God, went after next what was most valuable to God in all creation. And that was unsuspecting humans. Adam and Eve had no idea. They were unsuspecting totally. Albeit God had given them everything they needed, created them perfectly, although they were untested. He put them in a perfect environment. He told them everything they needed to know. He gave Adam his helpmate. She was supposed to help him. They were totally unsuspecting, but they were equipped and they were prepared. And you know what happened. And today Satan continues. He continues the bullying and the deceiving strategies he used back in the garden. He is committed not only to holding unbelievers in his kingdom of darkness, but also in pursuing those who've escaped into the kingdom of light by being born again. His first step in doing this is to steal the seed of the gospel. We all know the passage of Jesus tells about the soils and the seed being sown. When someone hears the gospel, the enemy immediately comes to try to steal it, to distort the message, to sidetrack the person through a diversion, confuse them, use alluring passions or time-consuming events. Anything, any tactic he can to steal that seed. But if the tactics are unsuccessful and the seed does take root, then the devil tries to neutralize that believer and keep that person sidelined. He tries to keep us from an intimate relationship with the Lord. He'll distort our understanding, our image of God to try to confuse us about God's goodness. And he will try to divert our focus away from worship and prayer. Worship and prayer, the, the two hallmarks of intimacy with God. We acknowledge him. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. That we, we give him all the praise and all the glory. We glorify him as God and we give thanks. Those are two elements essential to keep us in that intimate relationship. Worship and prayer. The devil may also deceive us into believing Maybe that those around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, are the real enemy. 
how Christians can be so critical of one another and how we can bite each other. He knows how easy it is to throw a rock at a distant bush and get people shooting at the wrong target. Or he will convince us that only the leaders in the church, the pastors, the elders, the evangelists, the missionaries are called into the battle. Any enemy would love to convince the opposing force that only the officers are supposed to fight. Whatever Satan's tactic, ultimately his goal, remember, is to render us ineffective. Ineffective, both in reaching others and in glorifying God with our lives. That's his whole point. But even as he wreaks havoc on humankind, he knows his time is limited. His time is limited because of Jesus Christ, Jesus' sinless life, his sacrificial death, his powerful resurrection, and his victorious ascension into heaven. In desperation, Satan is trying to inflict as much damage as possible on us while he still can. But of course, that raises the question. If Christ has already defeated our enemy by his sacrifice, isn't the battle over? Well, Psalm 110 verse 1 gives us some perspective on this. The verse says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, the, the phrase, my Lord, my Lord says, the Lord says to my Lord, that phrase, my Lord, refers to Christ. And at present, Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. We are in the time that the balance of that passage says, until I make your enemies a footstool. We're, we're living in that time, waiting for all of the enemies to be made Christ's footstool. And until the last day, our role, our part, is to be invaders, infiltrating a world that lies in the power of the evil one. John reminds us, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Yes, God is sovereign over everything, but right now, temporarily, the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this present world, does have the world under his control. But a day is coming when he won't. A day is coming when all battles will cease. But meanwhile, we are to be on the offense. We're to be on the offense. And sadly, most believers approach spiritual warfare purely from a defensive posture, a kind of hold down the fort until Christ comes mentality. Jesus described a much more aggressive approach to defeating evil and advancing the kingdom of light. In Matthew's gospel, gospel chapter 11, verse 12, Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Does that sound like an offense to you? Not that we're necessarily violent people, but that we are 
moving forward, we realize that we are to take more and more territory. Church, we have been designed for battle. Therefore, we need to become, quite frankly, who we are. To pick up our weapons and be soldiers who not only look out for our own safety, but also fight on behalf of others. Satan has convinced, tragically, he has convinced many of us that being good little boys and girls is what Christianity is all about. Just be moral. Just, just don't sin. Just be good little boys and girls. That is not what Christianity is all about. That's a passive approach. And a passive approach to following Christ dilutes the real thing. The question comes down to this. Are we at peace or are we at war? Are we at peace or are we at war? What difference does it make? The difference between sleeping and waking. It's said of Native American men that when they lost their need to be warriors, they lost their identity and they began drifting and drinking. Many Christians today find themselves in a similar situation. They've been fashioned for war, but now without any vision, without any passion to be a warrior, they simply sit down in a church pew, sleepwalking through life. Church Jesus calls us to be fellow warriors, enforcing his victory over the evil one. Think about this irony. God is using mere earthlings, mere, mere people to defeat the rebel of heaven. We are Christ's soldiers living and we're fighting behind enemy lines until that final victory is accomplished. And when you know you're in a war, your adrenaline flows, you're passionate and you're willing to make sacrifices. You don't expect, you don't demand constant comfort or security or enjoyment or entertainment. Each day's tasks become, in effect, a spy mission, an assignment from our commander. I believe that the most predominant and preeminent goal for each of us is not our own comfort every day, not our own personal peace, not our own personal affluence, but rather to see ourselves involved in a war and that we want to see the kingdom of God come in all of its fullness. In fact, that's our prayer. God, not our, our will be done, but your will be done. Your kingdom come more fully. And we not only pray that, but we, we live that reality out. What a privilege our Lord has given to us. We get to participate with him in the battle of the ages. And we know who wins. We know who wins. We're not on a losing side. There's no doubt about it. But we're called to engage while there's still time in this warfare. To engage in the battle is to live every day with a noble 
gripping dream of helping bring about a kingdom in which all things are redeemed, all things are restored to wholeness. One day this will all be new. And one day we will be totally perfected. And as soldiers in a spiritual battle, our role is as much about who we are as what we do. I believe there are three qualities necessary to be an effective spiritual warrior. And of necessity, these must be present and you find yourself engaging the war. The first quality is intimacy with God. An intimate relationship with God as our father. We're told that we can address him as father. Our father. Few things render us ineffective faster than allowing distractions to keep us from enjoying our father's presence. One writer said this. One thing is clear. Those nearest to God in the battle stand the least likelihood of suffering defeat. Are you intimate with God? Or do you simply have some global generalized faith in God, even as your father? A simple practice, I think, that will revolutionize your daily enjoyment of your heavenly father would be simply to do this. Pause. Pause periodically throughout your day. Close your eyes, shut out the world, and acknowledge him. In fact, Proverbs 3 says, acknowledge him in all your ways. Take a few moments, stop, get quiet. Shut out the distractions best you're able. Acknowledge him. Father, thank you for your grace to me. Thank you for your kindness to me. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you for every good gift you provide. Thank you even for these trials and struggles. But thank you that I'm not alone. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you care for me. Thank you that you've forgiven me. Thank you that you're faithful. In Psalm 46, verse 10, we read, Be still, know that I am God. Know that, that whatever it is, he's got it. He's got this. He's saying, be still. Don't be anxious. Don't be fretful. Don't worry. Know that I've got this. Trust me. Acknowledge him throughout the day. Become more and more intimate with him. By faith, accept the fact that he really is there. Again, that he really does care. And he is faithful to never leave you nor forsake you. And he will provide his grace to you. As he told the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, my strength is perfected. God's ways are not our ways, but we can acknowledge him and we can rest in a renewed intimacy with our heavenly father. Secondly, holiness should mark our life. Soldiers in God's kingdom lead, quite frankly, holy lives. A holy life means simply this. It's, it's dedicated to him, dedicated to his kingdom, dedicated to his will. It doesn't mean you're just pious all the time, bow to your head. Jesus' purity was a powerful safeguard 
from the enemy's attacks. Because as he said in John 14, 30, the Satan has no hold on me. Does the devil have a, a foothold in your life? Is there something, some issue, some ex, uh, experience in which he can glom on to and aggravate and aggravate and distract you and discourage you? Is your life divided? Are you double-minded? Or are you wholly devoted to him? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Holiness. What does this kind of lifestyle warfare look like? Well, tell the truth. Be a truth teller. Be a truth teller. And every time you tell the truth, you assault the father of lies. Forgive someone. Forgive someone who has wronged you. Don't justify yourself. Don't say, yeah, but, yeah, but, you don't understand. Forgive them. And you keep the devil from taking advantage of you. Again, that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're not unaware of his schemes, of his tactics. Unforgiveness allows for him to gain a foothold in our life. Deal with your anger before you go to bed. We all know the passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You want to keep the enemy, again, from gaining a foothold in your relationships. How many husbands and wives go to bed angry? And they allow the enemy to get in there, gain that foothold. Tragic. Husbands, you need to love your wives, live with them in an understanding way. Wives, you need to learn what it means to show proper respect to your husbands. You need to fight for your relationship and fight for one another, not fight against one another. <coughs> you don't want the enemy to gain a foothold in not only in your relationship, but in your home and begin to attack your children. Far too many homes, Christian homes, the parents have opened the door wide and said, come in, devil, attack my children, attack my home. Thirdly, prayerfulness. Effective spiritual soldiers are prayerful. They pray. Through intercession for non-believers, we affect the whole spiritual atmosphere around them. I believe, and I've said this before, and I'll say it continually. You pray for somebody, you affect their life. They can't fight against you. They can't battle it. There's nothing they can do. You pray. You intercede on their behalf. You lay your head on your pillow at night. You go through your list. You pray for those people. And sometimes you giggle because you know these prayers are affecting them in ways that they can't fight. We can pray for their minds to be liberated so they can make intelligent decisions and more particularly intelligent decisions for Jesus. We can pray that the unbeliever will come to love the truth and that God's truth would overturn the enemy's lies and deceptions. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 
Paul writes, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. And to Timothy, he writes that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Prayerfulness. Prayerfulness. This is part of our spiritual weaponry. In addition to helping liberate unbelievers, our prayerfulness is the main way we fight on behalf of one another, each believer. Believers are not your enemies. You can have disagreements about doctrines, but we are to love one another. Jesus did this when he prayed for the church in John chapter 17 in his great high priestly prayer. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That's our prayer for each other. Lord, protect my brother, protect my sister from the evil one. Strengthen them. Give them spiritual wisdom and understanding, knowledge of your will. Lord, guard them in all their ways. Lead them in how they should go. And you pray that for yourself. So, in our discussion this morning, we begin to understand some of the essentials of spiritual warfare. Next time, we'll talk about the weapons that God has given us in more detail as we engage this battle. We're Christians. We're active. We're on the offense. We're not passive. We don't just sit back and do nothing. We know that we have an enemy and we are to resist him and we're to engage the battle. I hope this is helpful to you. I want to encourage you. Let's move forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for this great salvation that you've worked on our behalf. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for working in us. Thank you that we can cooperate with you and we can, Lord, make a difference by your grace and by your spirit. Help us to have eyes to see and give us understanding in terms of spiritual warfare and spiritual attacks. Lord, we don't want to give the devil too much credit, but we don't want to ignore him. We want to know and see how other people can be easily deceived and kept captive. Renew our enthusiasm to be intimate with you, to live lives that are totally dedicated to you and to your kingdom. Lord, nothing is more important than that. And keep us, Lord, acknowledging you in all of our ways, prayerful, prayerful, interceding, Father, we thank you. We love you today. We continue to pray, Lord, that you would stir us up and grant us boldness to live our lives for your glory and indeed to speak up when you give us opportunity. We pray, too, for revival to break out in our land, our, our neighborhoods, Lord, our world. We pray that you would pour out your spirit 
We long to see, Lord, your, your spirit just move mightily and people crying out to you for forgiveness, just spontaneously convicted of their sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We pray too, Lord, we ask you to have mercy on our state and you bring us rain. Lord, just bring us rain. You know your plans for us. And again, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. And Lord, I pray too for our election coming up. And I pray God that you, you would go before us and go before our land. Lord, cause your people to humble themselves under your mighty hand, to repent of their sin. Lord, if we did that, you'd heal our land. I pray for our president, you'd strengthen him, restore his health, give him much favor. We pray, Lord, for the enemy. We pray, God, that you would rebuke the devil. We love you today. And Father, we do come to your table. We ask your spirit to search us, to see if there's any hurtful, discouraging way in us. Cause us to confess those things, repent of them as we take these elements. Again, Father, we love you today. We give you thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, church. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.